Each Sunday during this time in our service, we have one of our pastors come up and lead us in a focused, intentional prayer time for some concern. Today, we're going to pray specifically for this situation of the global pandemic of the coronavirus. The Southern Baptist Convention, which we are part of, we are a Southern Baptist church, has issued today as a day of prayer. Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer, who pastors in Raleigh, North Carolina, along with the Great Commission Council are calling all Southern Baptists throughout the more than 47,000 churches to commit a dedicated time of prayer this Sunday, March 15th, 2020. Now, we certainly didn't have to meet together to be able to do that, but one of the reasons why I was hoping that that I at least could be here with whoever else would show up is so that we could do this very thing. I hope that in the past couple days as we all have watched the news and literally just stared at our phones to see what's the most recent announcement, that you have prayed for God to work. I'm serious about this. Surely we're not running around worrying and freaking out and have not hit our knees. I hope not. And that's what this is to do, is to put us in, um, in this mindset. So they have given us four prayer points, and now I want to lead us through all four of these. If you want to jot these down, you can. I mean, you can find all of this. I got this straight off the SBC website. Uh, but you can jot these four prayer concerns down. So I'll read each one, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Number one, ask God in his mercy to stop this pandemic and save lives, not only in our communities but around the world, particularly in places that are unequipped medically to deal with the virus. That's our first prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that the numbers keep going up. We know that there are thousands who have this virus right now. We know that there are many who have already died, and we know that it could potentially get worse. We know that it is spreading, and we know that we are working to uh, minimize the spread. But Father, we also know that you have the power to stop it. We want to be wise and act, and we also want to ask you to act. Father, we pray that in your mercy and your strong sovereignty that you would stop this virus. God, I pray that you would make it go away. God, I pray that the people that have it would be healed and they would not die, that their immune systems would be strong. God, that they would overcome this. God, I pray that the amount of people that would get it, suffer from it, and even die from it, God, would be stopped, that it would be fewer, that it would be less, God. We ask for that. God, we know that you can do that, and we pray specifically, God, that you would stop this virus. We believe that you can. God, we pray that even here, close to us, with our families and with our church and with our communities, God, that there would be nobody who gets this coronavirus, God, that there would be few people who get this, God, that you would guard us. The Bible says that you are a shield, that you are our safety, and so we cry out to you now, and we ask in the name of Jesus for you to stop this. Amen. Number two, pray for President Donald Trump and other government leaders, international leaders, federal leaders, state leaders, and local leaders to have the wisdom to direct us in the best courses of action for prevention and care. Perhaps this is of the utmost concern to us uh, because we are listening to what they're saying. We know about the schools being closed. We've heard of everything being closed. We know that there's a ton of pressure right now on our Governor Bashir. We keep hearing from him. We keep looking to him, what he's going to say, um, and not only at the local level, but certainly nationally. We have heard so much about the pressure that is on uh, Trump and his administration. If things get as bad here as they are in Italy or in other places, that we could be in big trouble. So let's pray for these leaders now. Father in heaven, we thank you for those who are in leadership. We know, God, that the responsibility that comes with making decisions is so huge. God, it is so easy for all of us to have an opinion, and it is a much, much bigger, heavier responsibility to execute those decisions, to put them in place. 
Father, we pray for our Governor Bashir. We pray for our President, Donald Trump. God, we pray for everybody that is in those positions making those calls. Lord, we pray that you would lead them and guide them, that you would give them wisdom. God, I pray that they would be able to think clearly and not be swayed or influenced by backlash or opinion or news outlets, that they would truly try to do the right thing. God, that they would make decisions that are helpful. God, I pray for the many, many workers, doctors, nurses, hospitals, people that give care. God, even down to people like us who are going to work with Dare to Care this week, Father. I pray for the many, many people who cannot stay in and have to get out and try to help. I pray for police officers, God. I pray for uh, emergency workers. God, the world cannot happen without people who sacrifice. We pray, God, that you would empower those people now, that you would use them for good and for safety, that you would give them wisdom and honor and integrity to make good decisions. We ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Number three, Scripture says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Pray that the Lord will give us wisdom in this moment as fear of wisdom in this moment of fear as the foundations of what we know are shaken, that others would realize how fragile life is and how real eternity is, and they would see their need to turn to God. Father in heaven, this is all so real. We feel a great sense of uneasiness, unsettled. God, even though we know that We are not to worry, we are worried. And even though we know that we are not to be afraid, on some levels we are fearful. Not to the point of freaking out or or sinning, but Father, we are anxious. But we know that your Bible says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Father, we know that in everything, you will be with us. Even though we walk through the fire, you will be with us. Even in the valley, you are faithful. Even in our suffering, you are good. Father, we know that no matter what happens to us, you work all things together for the good. We know, Father, that in the worst of situations, to die is gain. We have just seen this in the recent weeks as we are studying the book of Philippians as Paul says that in this book. So Father, we pray as we look to you that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, that you would cause our feet to be firmly established on Christ, the solid rock. You would help us to see, God, that that ultimately we're never really all that safe and secure. That even if there was no such thing as a coronavirus, there are other things that should unsettle us as well. That life is often unsettling. And yet in all of that, God, we would realize that you are the comfort. You are the father of mercies and God of all comfort, as you told the Corinthians. Father, we pray that you would so teach us to number our days, that we would be careful how we live, and that you would give us wisdom. Father, may it be our witness that we're not foolish in how we live, that we're not flippant in how we act, but that we are very much so mindful, careful, prayerful as we navigate these heavy, heavy days. We ask for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. The last one, number four, says, ask God to protect our missionaries and their families around the globe using this global crisis to advance his good news to the whole world. You know, one of the things that you and I must be aware of is that it is really kind of easy for us to just quarantine and say, I'll stay in. Pretty easy for us to do that, right? 
But there are people all over the world right now who live every day in heavy, tough situations, and it is not so easy for them. And there are people in situations right now where they can't retreat. They can't just stop. They've got to keep doing what they do. And so we want to pray for them. As we pray for us, we want to even more so pray for them. We want them to know that God is with them. He is their father, their strength, their anchor, their power. So let's go to the Lord now for that. Father, we thank you that there are truly thousands and thousands of people spread out over the world right now to serve you. God, there are husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. There are people all over in every continent, all over the place, living there so that they can represent you, be ambassadors for you, show people what you're like, tell people what you say, love people the way you love, God. There are people everywhere, and we pray for them now. God, if we're uncertain, they must be very uncertain. If we're concerned, they must be very concerned. If we have the comfort of a grocery store on every corner, God, they may not. If we have the ability to stock up on bread or milk or toilet paper, God, they may not. And we pray for them. We pray, God, that they would not be afraid. We pray that they would have strength. We pray that they would not lose sight of the mission. We pray that they would remember their calling, Father. We pray that they would feel loved and supported. We pray that their bosses, that their churches, that their supporter team, that those who know them, those on their email list, those that they interact with, God, would encourage them, love them, build them up, write to them, pray for them right now. We pray, God, that you would empower them. We remember that call that every missionary learns early on from Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Father, we pray that right now they would remember that, that truth. They would remember their calling. Father, we pray here lastly that through this pandemic, this crisis, you would get the glory. We pray somehow that it would be glorious, that it would cause people to fear you, that it would cause people to not take life for granted, that it would cause people to run to you for forgiveness and help and safety, that it would cause people to say they need forgiveness, it would cause people to see how much you love them, it would cause people to see that you are a patient and gracious and merciful God. We pray, God, that it would cause people to see that they don't have forever to wait for you. God, we pray that people would come to know you, that they would believe, that they would trust Christ. Father, we pray that you would use this situation for your glory. God, I pray for all of us that are here today and those that will listen online, Father, that we would be a praying people so that right now we're not a praying church just because we've done this, but we're a praying church, God, because we will continue to pray. And God, I pray that we would not just be those who are concerned and worried, but we would actually pray. We would turn the TV off and put the phone down, and we would find some quiet stillness. We would get on our knees. We would circle up our family. We would say, hey, everybody come here for a minute, and we would pray. God, calls us to be those who are dependent upon you. May we not think we can handle this on our own. But may we, with all dependence, believe and trust you. Father, we thank you for this time of prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. Again, that, uh, that call of prayer is, is located online. You may have already seen that already. That is very helpful. Perhaps you want to pull that up and, and follow that and, and use that moving forward. Thank you all for that. You would now turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We have been in Philippians. And we will stay there. Today we're going to cover verses 12 through 16. You know, you get into some of these small letters from the Apostle Paul. And they are just so good. They are loaded. Philippians is really short. It's only a little bit over 100 verses. I think 121 or something like that. 
four chapters. In my Bible, it is, it's only like three pages. But it is so very good. In chapter three especially, we have some of the biggest statements. I think you're gonna like what we see Paul talking about today. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 16, that he presses on. He is not stopping. He is not quitting. He is not giving up. There are times where it's easier and there are times where it's harder, but he presses on. When I got to high school, I had never been a runner in my life. I had never run. I don't think I had ever run the mile unless they maybe made me in middle school. But when I got to high school, my high school basketball coach, when I was in the ninth grade, said to me, are you playing a fall sport? I said, no, sir. He said, all right, well, if you're going to play basketball, you're going to run cross country. That's a fall sport, and you're going to do that. So I started running cross country when I was in the ninth grade. I didn't really like it. All you do is run. At practices, you run. At games, you run. That's all you do is run, 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 run. I didn't like it that much, but I, I came to appreciate it. I came to like it. And I'm going to tell you all right now, I know that many of you all have probably never been to a cross country meet before, a competition, but they're awesome. They are exciting. For as much as I love lots of sports, there may not be anything more exciting than going to a live cross-country meet. It is outstanding. It's incredible. It is so exhilarating and exciting. The takeoff is phenomenal. The struggle through the three-mile race is cool. And then the finish line is just out of this world. And one of the things that I love about it is that everybody gathers around the finish line. And it doesn't matter whether you're the first person or the last person, everybody cheers for you to finish. Now, don't get me wrong, in a race, right, everybody runs to win the race. But there's another element to being in a race that you are to finish the race, right? There are two aspects. Even if you don't win the race, it is so fulfilling to finish the race. Everybody understand that? That's true. Now, you want to win, but only one person wins. But you are also to finish the race. And I can remember so many times coming in like 100th place and everybody just cheering and cheering. Come on, come on. And you're picking it up. And as you get to, you know, a quarter mile from the end, you start running a little faster. And you get, you know, uh, 200 yards from the end, you start running faster. And when you get to down to the last 100 yards, you're running as fast as you could. And you realize that your time is quite sad, but you are so happy that you are finishing the race and people are there cheering you on. You did it. And I have seen many times where people have limped across the finish line. I've seen many times where people have collapsed right before the finish line only to get back up and, and walk across. I have seen many times somebody carrying somebody across the finish line and, and everybody is so happy to see that they finished. What is so important about that is that they kept going. They kept going. This is what the Apostle Paul says happens in his faith. He presses on. Read with me at chapter 3 from verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What a passage. Two times here, verse 12 and verse 14, he says, I press on on. The Apostle Paul is telling us that he goes, that he goes hard, that he keeps going. Now, what's awesome about this, okay, is that we of all people and Paul of all people are not those who think that we have to earn our salvation. We do not believe that. Matter of fact, we hardly talk like this. When we get to really talking about doctrine and theology and what we believe and what the Bible teaches, we don't talk a whole lot about pressing on or don't give up or all that. We see that sometimes as just a motivational speech, sometimes a worldly or even secular talk like, hey, no matter what, just keep going, things will get better. And we know that that's not true. Sometimes you keep going and pressing on and things don't get better, right? So what's awesome about him saying this 
is that he is the guy who knows he is not doing this to earn something. He's not. Matter of fact, this passage flows right from what he just said before, and I want to remind you that, right? In verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had, I I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, no matter how much I pressed on, if I was the best at pressing on, I count that as loss, he says. In verse 8, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not doing things for him, not earning or achieving, not acquiring, not racking up tally marks of obedience, not goodness, but just knowing Jesus. In verse 9, look at this. He says, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The apostle Paul is the one who teaches us about the righteousness that is given to us outside of ourselves. If there is anybody in the world righteous and fit for heaven, and there are people, it is not because they are righteous. This is not in and of themselves. It is because of Jesus' righteousness. And so last week, I made a really bold and controversial statement where I said, if you are right with God and on your way to heaven and your sins are forgiven, it is not at all because of what you do. It is because of what you believe. Listen to me. I know that moderates and progressives and liberals and all those hate it when we say that. They do. They hate that. They will mock us, make fun of us. They will get rid of us when we say that because they think, listen, they think we say all that matters is what you believe and now it does not matter with what you do. That's what they think. That's what they accuse us of. But we are followers of Jesus and nobody has ever accused Jesus of just believing the right things and not doing the right things, amen? Jesus lived out what God wanted him to do. Jesus loved the poor, Jesus cared for people, he laid down his life, he had time for people. Jesus was a life full of active, working obedience. And we, as followers of Christ, are to do the same. And we see that with Paul. It is Paul who boldly says, I cannot get a righteousness of my own. My, my righteousness must come through faith in Christ. When I believe in him, God gives me righteousness. That is how you get right with God. Nobody earns it. But it is from that faith, it is from that truth that he believes, it is from that doctrine, that theology, it is because of his teaching that he knows that he then says, I press Listen, guys, theology, Bible, or teaching does not slow down or minimize obedience and action and works. It empowers obedience, action, and works. People who believe the most or believe the truth should be the ones who work the hardest. Paul, in other places in the Bible, says, I worked harder than anybody. Not because it got him something, but because he already had something. This is what we see here with the heart of I press on. Look with me at verse 12. Let's start with what he says here. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Interesting. Paul says he's not not there yet. He doesn't have it yet. He's not obtained it. He's not perfect but he's righteous, he's sure, he has security. How do we balance this? Well, I hope you've heard of this before because I've talked about it, but if you haven't, now, now's the time. There is something throughout the teaching of the entire New Testament that we call the already not yet. Raise your hand if you've heard of the already not yet before. Have you heard of that? Okay, good, so I'm gonna teach you here today. What it means is, is that there are a lot of things that we believe that are true, that in some ways they are already real and present, and in some ways they're not yet. Let me say, let me, let me explain a li- little bit to you. Already but not yet describes the tension between the benefits of redemption already experienced in this life and those benefits which await us at the consummation. Listen, Christians enjoy the alreadiness of the atonement, Remission of sins, adoption as children, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We already have those things. 
However, there is a sense in which we will not see these realities in totality until the last day. That makes sense. Write this verse down, 1 John 3, 2. Let me read it to you. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are, God, we are God's children now. Yeah, we are. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we, we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are God's children right now. Are we God's children in the final way that we're going to be? No, not yet. We are in God's kingdom right now. Are we in God's kingdom the way we're ultimately going to be? No, not yet. And so there are a lot of things that are the already not yet. And this is throughout the New Testament. Listen to this. Because of the already not yet, and because these things are not fully seen or experienced yet, they always remain to us objects of faith. For instance, the believer already has eternal life, but he is not yet physically resurrected. Likewise, the church is a fellowship of persons who are both new creatures in Christ and yet still imperfect sinners, right? Are we a new creation? Yes. Are we still sinners that, that, that aren't perfect? Yes. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says, I, I've not obtained it yet. It goes on, he says, True, the believer is no longer living as one who is totally depraved. We're not as bad as we used to be. But he can never attain sinless perfection in this life either. The belief in complete sanctification, in other words, I can become so holy that I don't sin anymore, in this life denies this already not yet tension. The believer is in a lifelong struggle with the flesh. The already not yet tension underlies the entire New Testament message. Understanding this tension provides us with the necessary balance for applying its teachings to every aspect of our Christian experience. Already not yet. I want to read a little bit more from one other guy. He says, but the already and not yet of Jesus' kingdom serves a few purposes. First, God's people are forced to live by faith, not by fad. And this is what really works against us. We really, listen, we really, really, really want to feel like it's complete, it, it's finished, right? And in one sense it is, right? Christ has done it all. We are secure in him. But in another sense, we must press on in the faith. We must finish the race. He says, we must believe by faith and not by fad. Many people love to jump on the bandwagon when things are trendy. If the kingdom came all at once, many people would flock to it like the latest hip eatery. They want to see and be seen, but that's not how the kingdom works. Since the kingdom's power is largely unseen, it's only visible in changed lives. That's why the scriptures speak so often of fruit. No one sees how the fruit grows on the inside. They just see the change in us on the outside. Besides, everyone who follows a fad ends up dropping the fad. The kingdom of God has both ability and longevity to last when the rest of the world is damnable and eternally not cool. Secondly, the kingdom is meant to bring disciples to glory. Listen to this. That means that Jesus, the captain or forerunner, has gone ahead of us, and we follow him through the trials and triumphs of this life. Trusting in his promises and his prospects, the now guarantees the not yet. You hear that? The already, the right now, but the not, the already, the now, guarantees the not yet. If there are some things that you know to be true and you have experienced, it guarantees the things that we have not experienced yet. If Christ Jesus has changed your heart, made you new, and forgiven you of your sins right now, then it is a guarantee that he will take you to heaven then. It guarantees the not yet. He was raised for our justification, and our lives are hid with Christ in God. The already not yet is such a huge New Testament teaching for you guys to know. It will help make so much sense when you read your Bible. So now look with me back at Philippians 3. He says, I've not already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So Paul just tells us here that he presses on to make it his own. Well, what's he talking about? 
What is it that he wants to make sure he gets or he has or he possesses? Well, it's what we had just read before. Verse 7 He says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss so that I can have the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is what he's saying. And he's saying that he wants to have Christ. But you all would say, but doesn't he have him? I mean, don't we know Paul's testimony? How God came to him on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. God saved Paul, blinded him, convicted him of his sins. He said, hey, why are you doing the sinful things that you're doing? You need to come to me and live for me and repent of your sins and believe. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul did. God changed his life. God saved him. God forgave him. God gave him a new identity. God took him as one who opposed the church. God made him one who the church was afraid of. And then God turned him into a friend of the church, a worker for the church, right? Isn't that his story? Don't we know that Paul has Christ? Yes, we do. Well, then why would he say he doesn't have it yet? Because of the already not yet teaching of the New Testament. And so you see in verse 12, he says, I don't have it yet, but I press on to make it my own. But listen, remember the now guarantees the the future. Look at the last statement of verse 12, and you've got to see this. You've got to see this. Because... Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul does not doubt for a second that he is God's. He knows that he is God's. God is his father. Christ is his savior. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was for his sins. The blood shed on the cross was for the apostle Paul. He knows that. His sins are forgiven. His life is hidden with God in Christ. He knows that. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. He knows that God loves him. He knows that God is for him. He knows. He knows. He knows. He remembers his testimony. He remembers his sins. He remembers the conviction. He remembers the turning to Christ. He knows. And the response of knowing what God has done in him creates a passion to press on going after that God. In one verse, we have the Apostle Paul say, I don't have it, I don't got it, but I'm going to press on to make sure I got it. But I know he's got me. Everybody see that in verse 12. There is the tension of the already not yet. If you were to ask Paul, are you God's? Yeah. He'd say, yeah. If you were to ask Paul, are you there yet, are you there yet getting God? No, I'm still pressing on. Now listen, we live in a day where we love to take what somebody said over here and then put it opposed to what they said over here and, 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 and call people out, right? We love to see a little snippet of a sermon posted on Facebook and we say, that guy is a heretic. What a bad preacher. He should not say things like that. And almost 99.9% of the time, nobody listened to the whole sermon. If you were to take, I'm serious, if you were to take the first part of verse 12, okay, and post it online and not say who said it, there would be people who say, you don't believe in the security, right? You don't believe in the, uh, uh, the, the eternal security that you get. You don't believe in justification. You don't believe that we can have blessed assurance. And if you were to take the second half of verse 12 and you were to post that, There would be people that come out and say, oh, so you don't believe that there's a struggle? You don't believe that we have to keep trying? You don't believe that obedience matters? You don't believe that commitment matters? You don't believe that we have to go and do anything? And this is what happens all the time. The apostle Paul believed both. He knew that righteousness came from Christ alone. He knew that you cannot earn this. You have to believe in Jesus. But when you believe in Jesus, it is because The end of verse 12, Christ Jesus has made you his own. Salvation is of the Lord. God changes hearts. God gives faith. It is a gift of God so that nobody can boast. And when God has made you his own, the result of that is I press on to make it mine. I had a friend in high school, and y'all are going to be able to relate to these stories. I had a friend in high school who his dad owned a business. And he used to tell us all the time, man, I ain't going to college. I mean, whenever I grow up, I'm just going to take dad's business. I know he's already told me. And he was lazy. 
He was a bum. He had a bad attitude. He was arrogant about it. And we used to say, like, man, if he ever gives the keys over to you, boy, that business is going to crash because you you're pathetic, man. Your dad built that thing from the ground. He worked so hard. He's done all this sort of stuff, and, and you think you're just going to walk into it. You don't know how to do anything. He said, it's all right. And he acted like that, right? And yet, listen, I also know other people that their dad owned the business, and they grew up in it, and they honestly work just as hard as he does. They don't take it for granted. Matter of fact, they want to make it even better. They want to be so appreciative of what got it there, and they want to press on and work even harder, right? In both instances, listen, in both instances, one may think that it is automatically coming to them, but from our perspective with a flawed uh, illustration, one is certainly way better than the other, right? One example that I'm giving you today of the person who is going to get the business is such a beautiful thing and it's inspiring. And we think, man, praise God, you are a beautiful picture of what your dad would want. He is proud to hand the business off to you. You, you, you work just as hard as he does. That's a beautiful thing. And on another, we will shake our head and say, that's a shame. That is so unfortunate. That's a disgrace. And as a matter of fact, we've heard people say, if his dad were alive right now to see how he is, he'd be rolling over in his grave, right? We hear people say that sort of stuff because it is so shameful to us to, to be that way. Folks, listen to me. If the gospel message is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, suffered and died for your sins, and you don't want to press on to know him, that is a shame. You ought to get his name out of your mouth. Because when you believe that Christ Jesus has made you his own, the response is, I want to make him my own. You understand what I'm saying? You understand where Paul's coming from? You get that? Because of what Jesus has done, I press on to make it my own, he says. Paul is known as somebody who went hard, who gave his all, who sacrificed, he pressed on. Now, let's look at verse 13 because he's gonna tell us now how he does it. And this is where we're gonna go now for the second half of the sermon. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's already said that, okay? He's already said that he doesn't think he's there, he's not obtained it, he's not perfect yet. He does want to make it his own, but he hasn't yet. He is not there yet. Now, he's secure because of faith, but he presses on. And he says it again. I do not consider it I've made it my own. But then he says, but one thing I do. This is one of the places. There's a couple places in the Bible that say this. This is one of the places in the Bible where it just is simple. And it encourages us with simplicity. One thing. This one thing that life is to be about. It's not like, hey, man, I got so many things to do today, I don't know where to start, man. I'm so overwhelmed right now. I got so many books I'm supposed to read, I don't know where to start. I got so many people I'm supposed to help, I don't know who to help, right? I got so many bills I'm supposed to pay, I don't know which one I'm supposed to pay first, right? We get overwhelmed with all the different things, and it's refreshing and encouraging to see the simplicity of, Paul says he's got one thing in mind. Now, the one thing is pressing on, and now he's about to tell us how he presses on. But before we get into it, Let's make sure that we know, all right, what I just went through with the already not yet. You follow me? He's not pressing on because he thinks he's earning righteousness from God. Everybody understands that. He's pressing on because Christ Jesus has already made him his. Everybody understand that, right? Let's don't get out of here thinking that we don't understand how salvation happens. When you believe in God by faith in Christ and you ask for forgiveness and you repent of your sins and you believe, you are saved and that is a work of God inside of you. Christ Jesus has made you his own. And because of that, now we press on. And then we get right here in verse 13 how he presses on. He says two things. That's all we got to see for the rest of the day. Two things. Forgetting what lies ahead Forgetting what lies behind, sorry, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. How refreshing is that? How refreshing is that? Over the years, there have been numerous, numerous times 
where I've stood up here on this stage and I've given an example of what it means to repent. To turn to God in faith is to repent of your sins. And here's what it means. Our lives are going this way. We are living our life however we are. Maybe we're nice, maybe we're mean, maybe we're wise, maybe we're foolish, I don't know. But we're living this way. And when we come to know God, we turn to God. We turn in repentance toward God. The Bible uses that very phrase, repentance toward God. And we turn in repentance away from sin. Everybody understands that, right? That's why it's a 180 and not a 360, right? A 360 would be a circle and keep going the same direction. It's a 180 to turn away from whatever we were living for and turn to God, repentance toward God, and repentance away from our sins. And that's what we do, okay? So notice here that in this pressing on to make Christ Jesus his, he does one thing. He forgets what lies behind And he strains forward to what lies ahead. These are running terms that he's using. The pressing on, the straining toward. These are running terms. He is saying, I'm not going to quit. I am not going to give up. I will keep going. Now, here are the two aspects. Forget what's in the past. Folks, the beauty of the good news is that whatever is in your past has been dealt with on the cross. Do you understand that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us? Whether it is outright you're a liar, whether it is you are so self-centered that all you do is talk about you and arrogant and boast, whether you've just got out of prison because of this or that, whether you have been through so many relationships, whether you are so insecure that you can't stop thinking about you and your flaws instead of looking in God, whatever it is, whether you've been mean, whether you've got a foul mouth, whether you gossip, whatever is in your past, when you come to Christ, it is forgiven. It is gone. It is dealt with. This is the good news. It does not matter what you bring to Christ. He will forgive it. And that is always, always true. And the apostle Paul, listen, says his strategy to press on is to forget what's in the past. Now I know that photo albums, And old social media posts pop up. I know that bumping into an old friend in the the grocery store and a thousand other things will cause us to remember our past. I know that life is struggle and there are always memories of the sin and of the bad decisions and of the foolishness and of the ungodliness is there. I know that. But remember, we live by faith. We believe. And so no matter what it is that is burdening us, bothering us, disturbing us, getting at us, no matter what it is, we look to Christ, we believe Jesus, and we know that in him we have forgiveness. We know this. So that if our eyes ever do catch a glimpse of that which is behind, we are able to say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. That's the good news. Now, remember that the guy saying this knows it as good as anybody. He literally was worse than us. If we're talking about like how we look around and compare ourselves to others, he was worse than us. He watched, I don't think any of you have, he watched people be murdered. Watched it. He gave the go-ahead for Christians to be killed. I've never seen anybody actually be murdered. I've been in the hospital many times when somebody's died. I've been there. But I have never seen out in the open, like on the street, somebody get beat up to death or kicked to death or shot to death. I've never seen that. He did it a lot. He told them to. He watched it. He made it happen. In many ways, he's worse than us. And yet at the same time, he is the guy saying, I'm pressing on to know Jesus. And here's my strategy. I got one thing in mind. That that's in my past is there and I'm not looking back. Remember the passage I read earlier in the service from Luke chapter 9 of Jesus? Do you remember that? Where he said, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
You remember that? It's the same thing Jesus is saying. Hey, if my life took away your sins, stop looking back like it wasn't good enough. If the Holy Son of God dying in our place is not enough to give you forgiveness, then you don't understand the cost. You don't understand how huge it was. But it was. And since the death of Christ is enough for us, stop looking back. Now, you know what happens when you put your hand to the plow and look back, right? Now, I haven't plowed recently. I do have a tiller. But I mow grass. And in you mow grass, man, you've got to have straight lines. There's nothing more shameful than a man having crooked lines in his yard. My dad would kill me if my lines were crooked. And you've got to stay focused. I mean, it's like this. You've got to concentrate. I've been trying to teach JJ this. You've got to concentrate. And if you ever try to do that, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to keep going straight. Paul says, here's his strategy to make sure it's Jesus. Man, I'm pressing on. I'm forgetting that that's behind me. All that negative, all that heaviness, all that burden, and I'm forgetting about it. Christ took it. Jesus says nobody's fit for the kingdom if you're trying to do this and do that. Hey, I dealt with it. I took it, he says. Get your hands here and press on. That's only part of it. There's still another part. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. In other words, it's not just wanting me to get rid of my past. It's also that the, the, the prize and the goal is so good. Man, I can't wait to get there. I went to a wedding last night for Chris and Elizabeth. It was awesome. I was glad to be there. And I saw that Chris had posted earlier in the day on his social media, he said, this is the happiest day of my life. Cool statement, right? He's had a lot of happy moments in his life. But he says, this is the happiest day of my life. I'm getting to marry her. He's so thrilled about it. Folks, the Bible wants us to understand that eternity in heaven and the kingdom of God and eternal life and being with our Father and all of the other people who are saved is the prize. We will be there with God. We will see him. We will worship him. It will be amazing. It will be glorious. And Paul says, I've got my eyes on that, and I'm not going to get distracted. I press on. I forget what's in the past, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. Then in verse 14, he says again, I press on to the, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying the same thing over and over again. He presses on. I want to ask you seriously, can we say that we press on? Do you know how to press on? What is it that you press on toward? Are you good at money getting tight and so you're able to keep an eye on it and you're able to say, look, we've only got this much money to last another week, but we're gonna do it. Are you good at watching what you eat and so, man, you will stick to water. Are you good at pressing on at anything? Take that perspective, that balance, that focus, that intensity and say, the Bible tells me that's how my faith should be. I should press on. Y'all ever heard of the organization MAD, M-A-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk Driving? You ever heard of that? This is a fascinating thing. None of us like drunk drivers. None of us do. None of us do. But many of us are not involved with an organization against it. Now, we hate drunk drivers. We especially hate drunk drivers that get in wrecks and kill people. I mean, we hate that. That, that sounds awful. That ruins lives and families. But there's an organization for it, lots of them. And a lot of times people don't get involved. But you know who does get involved? A mother who has had her child killed by a drunk driver. Do you understand that? Now, I'm not a mother, and I've not had a child killed from a drunk driver. So I'm not in MAD, M-A-D-D. But if you were to ever go to a mad meeting, you would find a mother whose child had been killed by a drunk driver, and you would find a lady who is so impacted, affected, bothered by that, that she is now incredibly passionate about putting a stop to it. Does everybody follow me? When you find a savior who took your sins, went to the cross, took the judgment, suffered under the wrath of God for you, 
and you know that you sin, like every day you're aware of your sinful tendencies and the temptations and the struggle of life, you know that you're a sinner. And then you come to know that there's a Savior who loves you and died for your sins. It's like I want to be involved in this. He has made me his own, so now I press on to make him my own. I press on for this. And here's how I do it. I'm forgetting what's in the past that held me back and ruined my life. And I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. When I know of somebody who is involved with MAD, I totally get it because they have been so impacted by drunk drugs. Drivers, listen to me. When I know of somebody, listen, who knows and knows and knows that worthy is the lamb who was slain, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for my sins. When I know somebody that knows that and they believe that, you know what you also get? You get somebody who presses on to make that Jesus what they're about. Look what he says at verse 15, and we'll be done. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, any, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Folks, this is the way the Philippian church is to think about living their lives, walking in obedience, striving after God. In, in chapter 1, he used the word striving together. In chapter 3, he says straining toward the goal, straining toward the prize. He says twice in our passage today, I press on. Folks, while our Bible teaches us to rest, to believe, to be settled by the work of Jesus, it also teaches us that from that truth, from that salvation, we should press on living for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's passion. Thank you, God, for how we know him to be this strong doctrinal guy that teaches justification by faith, and yet he goes hard for Jesus. Thank you for that. God, help us to have in us this balance of Christ Jesus has made me his own, so I press on to make him my own. God, help us to be that way. God, help us to never be accused of being flippant or indifferent or lazy or hypocritical or, or not caring or not desiring to be obedient. God, remove that from us. Help us to press on. Father, we thank you that it is your truth and good news and promise to us that we can forget what's in the past. That our past is not what defines us. It is your work, your salvation that does. And we praise you for that, and we press on in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.